0: and Craig S. On the program today is a new guest, John Black has joined us. John is CEO and Director of Aldi Barron Resources, a copper-focused company with various stage projects in Argentina, including its core coal- Alter Gold Copper project. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol A L D E, and also on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol A D B R F. John Black, thanks for coming on the program, welcome.
1: Hi, it's a pleasure to be on.
0: Well, John, you're probably new to some of our audience. Why don't you start off here by maybe just covering your background for us and experience in the natural resource business?
1: Okay, great. Um, I'm an exploration geologist by training. I, I trained under Marco Naudi at Stanford University for my undergraduate and, and graduate degrees. And uh, I specialize in exploring for copper or copper gold deposits, spent about the first half of my career exploring with major mining companies, Rio Tinto, Western Mining primarily, and pretty much exploring throughout most of the world with a, with a long stint in South America as part of that time, one of the best places to be looking for copper deposits in the world. And in 2004, some friends tapped me on the shoulder and asked if I'd be interested in uh, joining them to form a junior company, um, essentially doing much the same I did for a major mining company, just doing it for a junior company, trying to identify large copper deposits, capture those, drill those out, and then ideally sell them to a major mining company. So our business strategy is effectively to replace the exploration division of a major mining company.
0: Tell us just a little bit more. What happened next and maybe just lead us up to why you know Aldebaran became a company?
1: Well, as I mentioned, when when some friends had the idea in 2004 that metal prices would, would take off, it was just before the the first real uh, increase in metal prices we've seen in the last 20 years here, that stretch of time from about 2006 to 2011. And they, they were right in predicting that the metal prices would go up, and they wanted to form a team to go out and find deposits into a rising market. And when you set up a junior company, you have to think about what type of a company you'll have. And so the business strategy we, we chose is that based on the experience of our team and and the core people in our team are myself and Kevin Heather, who's our chief geological officer. So we're both um, very experienced, probably a few more decades than we care to admit of time running around South America, looking for large copper or copper gold deposits. And uh, we chose to, to set up a business model whereby rather than grassroots or looking for brand new projects, that we would identify projects that already had some pretty interesting indicators to them and that we felt had the potential to be a much larger deposit, the type of deposit would be of interest to a major company. So the strategy is to identify these projects, capture them when the market's down or when the, the person or the group that owns the project doesn't quite realize what they have or needs to sell it. Uh, typically, we, we drill those deposits out to show the full size to them de-risk the projects to, to prove that they can be economically and viably mined as we move forward. And then ideally we sell those to a major mining company. And our first company was called uh Alt or Antares Resources. And with Antares we had the good fortune to discover the Hakira deposit in southern Peru, which we drilled out and sold to First Quantum in 2010 for about $650 million. So we've we've executed our business plan once. From that, we spun out Regulus resources, which currently focuses on a really interesting copper gold play in northern Peru. And from that, we've spun out all the resources, the company we'll talk about today, where we have our hands on the, the very exciting Altar projects. So that's that's the strategy we we intentionally set up. We've executed it well once. You learn a lot in that. I think our first time around we were We were as geologists focused on the geology and I I think we learned a lot about the whole business end of the process as well in that that first execution of our business plan. So we're pretty excited to to be starting on Altar. It's one that's not well known to the market right now. It kind of fell off the map for a while. We've uh, put our hands on it, uh, put a lot of work into it in the last two years to understand it well ourselves. And it's it's in a very good position right now to be, be launched out to the market. So it's an outstanding time for people to take a look at Aldebaran for that project. And it couldn't be a better time with this um, all-time historic highs in copper and gold prices both right now.
0: John, so you've been around long enough to witness some of these cycles. You know, 2010, I think of, uh, you know, majors, you know, going on acquisition spree at uh, quite uh, elevated valuation levels. Talk about just your thought process of, you know, we know that in a bear market, projects that get advanced, if they get taken out at a bear market, which uh, good projects should, there's typically also a valuation level that's more um, meaningful to the acquirer. Talk about just you know, your thought process of this cycle, where we are today in the gold price and copper price environment. Where do you think we are in that cycle? And what do you look for on the exit side, of when you think you know valuations are starting to get out of hand, supplies coming online, and, and this can all potentially unravel. Hence the cycle.
1: It's it's interesting. Our our, our industry is notoriously cyclical. Uh, we we actually um, depend on that. It's part of our business plan. Is that we ideally we're finding one of these projects, getting it de-risked and fully exposed on the size, and delivering it right right when we're hitting a peak in the market. And so we, it doesn't mean that we need the higher prices to make the projects that we look for viable. We look for projects that would be viable at at almost any metal price. But what happens is, is that the the groups uh, that we target as potential acquirers of our projects, uh, even though they should be buying projects when metal prices are low, and, and junior companies like ourselves are, are maybe beaten up and our market caps are low. It'd be the perfect time for a major company to come in and, and acquire a number of assets, but they're usually stressed themselves financially. So we get into these situations where when metal prices spike the way they are right now, gold's been up for for a couple of years now and, and copper has really taken off in the last six months or so, is that the the companies begin to accumulate quite a bit of cash and their shareholders begin to Per, instead of uh, focusing on conserving cash and, and focusing on dividend, they start to focus on growth, and so they get pushed to to use that cash to go out and do something. So um, that that's the at the point which people are buying. It's it's very similar to to our, any of ourselves as individuals. If you if you're doing well financially, you're more likely to go out and pay for a house and you're probably a little less worried about the price you're paying. If uh, if it's the bottom of the market and you're worried about your job and houses are cheap, you're still not likely to buy it because you're, you you want to be cautious on your cash. So where, where I believe we're at right now is is um, we're really just at the very leading edge of, of entering into a major M&A cycle. When we see metal prices increase like this, it takes a little while for the companies to To build up the cash and start to feel the pressure that they need to grow we've seen a few transactions a little bit more in the gold space than the copper space gold took off a little bit earlier but i think um, we're just just beginning to see the point where we'll see a lot of um, major companies acquire assets moving forward so i we're pretty excited this is a this is a great time to be in the market right now
0: very well john i appreciate you sharing some views on your thoughts on that part of the cycle and so forth Let's get into the company here. You've kind of given us a bit of an overview, so let's skip that for a sec. We'll get into the projects, but uh, maybe just cover the capital structure here for me. Um, How many shares are outstanding? What is the cash debt situation? And if you would, major shareholders you'd like to point out?
1: Okay, so it's a fairly fairly straightforward share structure. We have about 114.5 million shares out after a recent financing we just completed. And we have just short of $10 million Canadian in the treasury. So we're in a pretty good position Treasury wise share counts not too bad out there right now Um, at current share price. It means we have a market cap of 70 to 80 million dollars Canadian. We do have a rather concentrated share structure, which uh, has both benefits and and challenges to it Um, because of the nature on on how we captured this project. We were heavily backed with one of our major shareholders. A, a, A hedge fund out of San Francisco called Route One has been a backer of us since our first company. They did well with us with Antares, they, they're they very pleased on how we've set up Regulus, and they, they helped us set up Aldebaran as a company. As a consequence, they own nearly half of the company, and they're a strong backer for us to go forward. Like us, they believe that these large copper or copper gold opportunities, these big porphyry systems, are, are harder and harder to find right now. We've done a pretty good job over the last 20 years of putting our hands on these uh that's it's very difficult to find new ones so they've encouraged that if we see an opportunity that we can capture a project like this that they'll provide the financial backing for us to capture the opportunity and then and do the work to show the full potential of it so as a consequent one owns just a little less than half and we we've acquired the project we have an option to acquire 80 percent of the project via an agreement with with Sabanier Stillwater uh, they they had the asset. It didn't particularly fit well with them as a as a platinum producing company more than anything else. And they were looking for, for a way to either sell the project or we encouraged them to, to enter into the agreement we have where they still maintain exposure to the project so we can they can realize a better valuation for it in, in the end. So as a consequence, they have about 19.9%. And between Route 1 and Sabania, that's nearly 70% of the company is held by two major shareholders, both of whom are very excited about the project and continue to participate on a pro rata basis whenever we finance to move the project forward. And then as management, uh, we, we also have a pretty significant stake in the project ourselves.
0: John, yeah, I've seen Route 1 over at Lumina Gold, uh, Ecuador Gold Copper Project as well. I've seen them come across uh, interesting their position here on the company.
1: Yeah, they're an interesting group, sorry to interrupt, but it's it's um, they're an interesting group because they don't specialize in in natural resources or, or mining particularly. And the way they've described their relationship with us is they, they look for teams that do things correctly it's very important for them that that they're they're identifying groups that not only are are technically sound but they also worry about a number of the other issues in our business uh related to community interactions or environmental actions so they look for groups that that do their jobs well and they look for groups that are serially successful and so i don't think it's um uh, a coincidence that uh that they they participate in us in the way that we've demonstrated to them we can work. And when you look at Equinox Gold and groups like that, you start to see that those are that are related to groups like Ross PD or the Lundins that, that have demonstrated they can execute a, a business model very similar to ours well and over time repeatedly.
0: Luxor Capital is another one that I would point out too that's not necessarily too involved in the space but also can take various positions based on management teams as well. How about your shares, the shares that you hold in the company, John, would you mind sharing with us, uh, you know, how many shares you have and also the price that you own your shares?
1: The bulk of the shares I have actually came from the spin-out as we, this this company was formed as a spin-out from our regular resources. So all of us as regular shareholders received shares from that spin-out. So I have a little over a million direct shares in the company and and a slightly larger amount of that in, in options. Um, Many of our options are priced quite high, actually. When we spun this company out, the the way we structured it for the initial cash injection by Route 1 to allow us to do this, they put up $30 million US for us to do this. The cost basis for them to come in on this was about $1.26 Canadian per share. And so consequently, as senior management, most of our options are priced at that. So our options are, are priced high, they're well out of the money. We don't have a share structure whereby uh, management or insiders have a large number of very cheap shares, the way some of our competitors do. It's uh, we're we're very much in this for for the end game, and and we we have a lot of work to do to to get to get our positions valuable.
0: Very well, and I appreciate the view there. I think that's important. Now you're also the CEO over at Regulus, if I recall correctly, and that company has a copper gold focus in Peru. How's that mm-hmm. going for you?
1: The project we have in, in Regulus is an outstanding project. When we, when we spun Regulus out of our sale of Antares minerals, uh, we we sold Antares to, to First Quantum. Uh, they were interested in acquiring the Hikira project that we we drilled out and showed to be quite interesting. We had some assets in Argentina that they they weren't interested in. So they allowed us to spin Regulus out and participated in that themselves as part of the spin out. And we pursued those projects from about 2010 to 2012, and then the market just kind of dropped out on us. But we were sitting on a a fair amount of cash and a recent success. So we felt it was the time in the market that it's best to go out and hunt for projects. So we kind of parked our assets in Argentina, and we identified the Entecore project in Northern Peru, uh, which has since become the flagship project for for Regulus moving forward, we acquired that in 2014. So it's a, a very large copper gold system, it's the exact type of system that we're interested in, in pursuing. But we found as we as we focused on that with Regulus um, that we, we had the assets in Argentina still and they were kind of parked, we were starting to get more people interested in Argentina I think over the past few years and particularly over the last year uh, interest has become much stronger to do exploration in Argentina. It's a bit of an underexplored and overlooked part of the, the South American Andes. And um, we we started to toy around with the idea of spinning spinning those assets out into a new company. And where it really gelled is with with Route 1's encouragement and identification of, of Altar as a p- project we put our hands on. We spun our uh, assets in northern Argentina out into Aldebron and then used Aldebron to enter into the option agreement. To acquire up to 80% of Altar, so we're very happy with with how Regulus is moving forward. There are a few challenges in, in Peru right at the moment. Um, they're they're facing an election in a week here that that could uh, change the the way mining's treated in the country. So so currently we're uh, many of us that work in Peru. It's kind of all eyes on Peru to see how that breaks. Um, we think that regardless of which direction that election goes, we'll be moving those projects forward, but they're they're a bit on hold at the at the moment as we we wait those election results. Um, Argentina, on the other hand, is 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 actually moving forward quite well, and our assets, our our principal project, Altar, is in San Juan province, which is one of the best provinces to be in in Argentina and the remainder of our assets are up in the north and Salton and Juhui, also a, a very good portion to be in, in, in Argentina. Argentina is a federation of states so each individual province ha- can have a different approach to, to mining investment and, and whether mining is encouraged and allowed and so you need to be very selective on which parts of Argentina you're in and quite fortunately our projects are in, in some of the best provinces to be in. So one of the thing that's important to note on this it wasn't our intent to be running two companies at one time but um when we when we uh put our had the opportunity to capture this asset uh Route 1 was um very insistent that they would back us to go forward but they wanted our same management team on both projects they didn't want us to be Uh, simply capturing a project and and going out and hiring a completely different management team. They they value our management team as much as the projects. And so it was their strong encouragement that we would would maintain both companies. It does present some challenges. Um, Sometimes I have to make sure I remember which which name I'm mentioning on it. But the way we've solved that is is that we've strengthened the bench on it. So we've added some some very important additional people to our company. Adam Greening's come on board as as VP Corporate Development for us. Um, outstanding just by background but with a lot of business development particularly in the the gold space on this so he's he's a great addition to our team uh laura brangwen is is come on board is is full-time ir for us as well so it's allowed us to i think when we first set up kevin and myself and our cfo mark wayne we tried to do a lot of things ourselves running a company and uh, and with the, the ability to spread our salaries across two companies, we've strengthened our bench and, and have a much stronger team now. So that's how we've addressed the issue of handling two companies at once.
0: Yeah, both of these companies are development stage, and so it probably makes sense to separate the jurisdictions. But, you know, I got to say, it's selectively difficult, but John, you seem to like the tougher jurisdictions in South America. And it seems like Peru, there's always an election. There's always an election. Mm-hmm. And... Again you mentioned the provinces in Argentina of course you know same thing in Peru to some degree some places are better than others talk about how difficult it is to develop and become a producer I mean we know exploration is generally okay but uh, how tough is it to get anything done in argentina
1: that's it's a very good question when we look we we tend to restrict our 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 strategy and our companies to South America. It's where Kevin and, and I have the most experience and the most contacts and language skills and ability to, to operate. Um, and then within that, that means we have six or eight different countries we could be working in. So you're you're always looking at, at the the proper balance between a very favorable jurisdiction, very safe jurisdiction. And then you you start to filter in what the rocks are like and then you start to filter in the degree of exploration. So I think when you do that type of analysis um, in South America, a lot of times you would gravitate towards Chile, obviously, if you're looking for copper and and maybe Peru is a close second on that. And you you kind of stay away from some of the more emerging countries like Ecuador or Argentina as as just not being major copper producers yet. Uh, and, And you focus on that. But by doing that, say, if you focused on Chile, Chile is a great, there's certainly a lot of copper deposits there, but it's very well explored too. And in much of the desert, it's easy to see things there. So it's it's hard to to miss something on it. And so that means it's hard to find a good project and land prices are very expensive. And so it's just difficult to come in and and get a a toehold there. Uh, Over the years, we've found uh, Peru to be a good balance between um, being an established mining country but one that's that's more underexplored, and it's underexplored in many ways because it's um, geographically more difficult to get to certain areas, and culturally it's a little harder to work in parts of, of Peru. So you have those challenges, but it means there are probably opportunities that haven't been found yet. So we we've uh, with all of our companies have found that it's a little easier to get a good project in Peru than say than say Chile. Um, But recently it has become a little more difficult in Peru, a little more expensive and and socially a little bit more complicated to work on projects. And then particularly over the last few years, we've encountered a number of elections and some elections off cycles that have have caused some some angst there. So it it is becoming more challenging. And what we're seeing now is is a migration of explorationists moving more into Ecuador, Argentina, some of these countries that aren't as established as copper producers but they certainly have the same geology as as, the, as Chile and Peru. They have a few more challenges. When you, when you work in a country that isn't a major mining country, a lot of times their legislation's not completely worked out. The communities or the, the country, the population, the country doesn't view mining as a major industry. And so it can be a little bit more challenging to, to find and put a project. A good example is Colombia where there've been some great discoveries, but it's very difficult to convert those into mines. And it's partly because they don't really have their environmental legislation worked out well yet. And so it keeps changing on you and that that presents some challenges. So within Argentina, it, it, as, if you look at the entire country, you would certainly say it can be a difficult country to work in. Um, mining's not a, a, a huge part of the, the economy there. And uh, they, for a variety of reasons, they, they kind of have some economic challenges just on how they, they run the country. Inflation is unusually high there right now compared to almost anywhere else in, in South America. And so it presents some challenges we have there. And they tend to have a made in Argentina mentality of, of keeping everything in the country which can make importation and exportation a little bit difficult. It, as you pointed out, it doesn't affect us very much in the expiration stage, but it can affect things in the mining stage. But what we're really encouraged about right now is as I mentioned, each province has a different approach to mining. And it's just it's be, it comes because they are a federation of states meaning that the provinces can set their own, own uh, rules about mining and, and encourage it in different ways and so there are some provinces that absolutely do not encourage mining at all and there are others that are they're quite pro-mining and fortunately with the altar project we're in in san juan which is the the most pro-mining province a good way to take a look at this is um the fraser institute ratings which is which is a, a rating of the attractiveness of countries or or provinces within countries for for mining investment that's that's conducted every year. Uh, they break out the individual provinces in Argentina because they recognize you can't treat the whole country the same. And you take a look at San Juan or Salta, where many of our other projects are. They they compete very well. They're in the in the oftentimes in the top 20 or so of, of favorable provinces. So I think you people are beginning to see that um, there are major mines in San Juan already. There are a number of very interesting emerging projects right at the moment. Um, one that's certainly notable to point out is Philo where they've, they've had a great project and, and recently hit some incredibly encouraging holes on that. So that's drawn a lot of interest into the province and the province realizes the potential they have now to, to, con, to continue to embrace mining as a major economic driver of the economy in the province and they, they kind of stand out as the shining example in Argentina for what mining can do to, to improve the living conditions for everybody in the province. It's also interesting to note that the, the Mines Minister of the country, uh, Mr. Hensel, uh, used to be the Mines Minister of San Juan and so he's he's looking to replicate that success that he had in San Juan uh, throughout other portions of the country that are willing to embrace mining. so um so essentially, uh, what we've seen is that Argentina or certain portions of Argentina have begun to realize the importance or the opportunity for mining to be there. they've They've begun to make it easier for us to work in those areas. and uh, and at the same time, we've in the just in the past uh, half a year or so, we've seen some challenges appear where where Chile and Peru um, are undergoing some decisions on whether they increase royalties on mining. And they're, they're, they're making it a little more difficult to work there at the same time that, that San Juan and Salta and other provinces in Argentina are making it more attractive to us. So it's natural that we kind of flow to where, where we're welcome and where we can work best.
0: Yeah, it's important for a place like Argentina, given their economic challenges, uh, look, mining is gonna have to be part of the solution. And without it, uh, it's gonna be a tough road, period.
1: A lot of countries worldwide are under stress right now economically, and and I, I think those that are that are well blessed with with good mineral endowment are are realizing that mining is one of the best drivers for economic improvement in countries right now. So so the the countries that that do that and and make it make it easy for mines to continue to operate and and to be developed as new mines are are going to benefit very well. So I I think this price cycle we're in is. Is is likely to be a more of a supercycle type pricing on this. So there are fundamental changes in the way we treat electricity more than anything else in the world, and that's going to result in a, in a remarkable demand for copper. We're going to be hard pressed to keep up with it. So I, I, I don't, I don't think we've peaked on copper prices at all, and I think we, this will be a long run on it. So the, so countries that are encouraging the development of major copper mines, I think, will be well off in the near future on it.
0: Certainly so. And this is absolutely critical. The mining industry is critical to everything that, uh, you know, modern nations uh, enjoy and infrastructure and really developing nations. The whole thing is based around mining and they don't get grabby. I mean, typically you see, you know, some of these governments do get grabby towards the tops of these cycles uh, where they start implementing and they want more of the pie, so to speak. And then it's kind of cyclical in that nature as well. But uh, we'll leave that one for another conversation any other key people that you want to point out you mentioned some before but any other key expertise at the company that you'd like to point out
1: well i think i've covered our most of our, our senior management team um, in addition to the people that i've mentioned already we we um, are geologically heavy on our team but we we do have two mining engineers or geologic engineers that are involved with it, stan foy who has a lot of history with the altar project he, he worked it for nearly a decade with Stillwater mining so he has has a lot of knowledge of the project and has been a great addition to our team and Joe Fernandez has has been along with us as, as part of the regulars group all along and is available to help out on both companies and so uh, we we as we advance a project from exploration and delineation to more de-risking and, and pre-feasibility type work it's critical to have people like that and that allows us also to uh, to do things like in, internally, we can calculate resources ourselves. When we report a resource, it has to be done by an external third party, but it's it's very good if we have a, a, a good handle on it ourselves as we, as we go into that process. And then the other important thing to point out is, is it, it's great to have a management team that's got experience and has done this before and everything, but I would argue it's probably even more critical to have a really good team on the ground. And we're quite fortunate that we've we've had a, a team in Argentina working with us from the earliest days of our first uh, first company as Antares. And so um, they're led by Javier Roberto, who's our, our country manager. And uh, so we have a complete team in country. And with some of the travel challenges we've experienced over the last year or so, that's really critical. There are times when it's a little more difficult for those of us outside of the country to move in and out of the country. Well now, and and so you need those people on the ground to be able to operate. And we've we've got a full team that's on the ground that have worked with us for nearly 15 years. So we're, we're fortunate in that sense.
0: John, well, let's talk about Altar. Hey, this is a core project for the company. Maybe just talk about the current status of the project and what the plan is to advance it. Say over the next, let's give it two years here.
1: This is a really interesting project in that it's it's a it's a very large porphyry, or better put. A cluster of porphyries. It's multiple centers, as, as many porphyry systems are. Um, it's one that had had quite a bit of previous work on it. it was it was drilled out by a company called Peregrine metals in in the early two thousand aughts, about the same time we were we were drilling out our our discovery with Antares. and they they advanced it to a certain stage, demonstrated it was a very large system. and that this project was actually sold by Peregrine in two thousand and eleven to stillwater mining. For 487 million dollars US, so they they effectively executed the same business plan we have. They identified the opportunity, they drilled it out, they de-risked it, and in a hot copper market, they sold it to a company that was looking to, a, to acquire an asset like this. But it was an it was an interesting transaction because it it um, Stillwater was a platinum producing company with with mines in the US and their shareholders were not too keen on having a, an earlier stage copper development project and, and it wasn't subject to a shareholder vote. So it was, it was pretty much viewed as a poor acquisition by, by Stillwater, particularly by their shareholders because they felt that management was taking the project in a, in a totally different direction than they should. The price that Stillwater paid for the project was in line with comparisons to acquisitions of other similar deposits. It's just they went really early and it didn't fit well within their company. So it it basically became stalled within Stillwater. They continued to work on it quietly. Um, All the work that they did from 2011 until 2018 was was on the side and not, not published to the market. They put about $45 million of additional drilling into the project during that period of time but it was just stalled it was it was one that fell off the map at that period in time the what it was known when Stillwater acquired it was was an extremely large deposit it was the the resource that was out at that time was about two and a half billion tons but at a grade of just a little over 03 percent copper with with a a bit of gold associated with it and that grade uh, might work in certain parts of the world say British Columbia or somewhere where you have access to really cheap power and good infrastructure but in, in the Andes, in, in Peru, or in uh, Argentina, it just didn't make, um, it, it seemed intuitively low for all of us that look at these type of projects. But what really caught our eye on this project is, is we knew the geologists that were working on the project and they were making presentations in local um, informal geologic forums like the infamous Santiago Beer Night for Geo, for Exploration Geologists. And they were talking about some pretty exciting results that they were encountering on the project. And what was different is they were, they were hitting intercepts, long runs of, of notably higher copper mineralization with pretty significant gold. Uh, runs of over over percent copper and over a gram gold uh and that was very different from what we all thought this system was so we asked to take a look at the project um and as i mentioned uh the route one folks had been encouraging us to to look out for opportunities like this and when we looked at the project we realized that even though it's extremely large it um it wasn't completely explored by any means at all and it wasn't very well understood geologically and we could see evidence that there were portions of the deposit at, at much better grade and so we we and many others pursued the the opportunity to acquire the project from Stillwater. They'd written it down to a hundred million dollars in their books. Word was they wanted all cash that was a bit rich for us to do that. Um, and we were we were kicking tires and looking for an opportunity to, to see how we could come in on it. And the key thing that happened was is that Sabanye, another major platinum producer, purchased Stillwater. And when they purchased Stillwater, they deemed the Altar project to be non-core asset and they marked it for for disposal, and uh, and and just wanted to get it off their books, and they didn't have that historical and emotional attachment to the project, so they were a little more open to, to different ideas on how to go forward. They still wanted cash only on it, but we uh, we convinced them. They they gave all of us that were under CA a, a a short period of time to put up indicative offers on the project. We convinced them that a better pathway forward would be one that we we gave them just a small amount of cash up front. But we gave them exposure to the project by them retaining an interest in the project directly and also having an equity interest in Aldebaran. So the agreement we have is that we can earn up to an 80% in the project um, by giving them $15 million U.S. in cash, which has been paid. And we, we complete the first $30 million of work to go to 60%. We're a little over halfway there on that right now with the option to go to 80% for an additional $25 million of work. So that's work in the ground. It's work that needs to be done on the project anyway. And then they, they have a 19.9% interest in, in Aldebaran. So they, they will gain by a small amount of cash, uh, a 20% interest in the project and a, and a 20% interest in Aldebaran if they choose to maintain their position. Since we've done this agreement they've actually um, developed a, a battery metals stat- strategy where they're intentionally looking for copper, lithium, nickel type metals worldwide. So this fits well within their overall corporate objectives now. It didn't appear to at first and we, we managed to capture the project then. But, the, um, but now it does fit well and so all indications are that they, they will participate and back us moving forward on the project and quite keen on what their interest. So that's kind of the setup on how we acquired and what we had. And so two years ago, when we entered into this agreement, we had over 100,000 meters of drilling on the project, but we needed to really understand it. So over the last two years, what we've done is we've focused on really tearing apart the geology and understanding. That's what we pride ourselves as a group is technically being sound on, on knowing what we have. And um, to our surprise that even though the the drilling had been executed very well, a lot of the basic things that we like to see on a project, or particularly a major company likes to see on the project, hadn't been acquired yet. There was no um, quality geologic map of the entire surface of the project done. Uh, There wasn't remote sensing that's commonly used for, for alteration identification on the project. Uh, very little systematic geophysics or, or soil sampling on the project. So we've spent two years kind of quietly assembling these large data sets, relogging all of the core, tearing it apart and understanding that each year we've done a little bit of drilling that's oriented drilling to help us understand geologic contacts better. And that resulted in us in, in putting out a new resource uh, c- a couple of months ago and this resource it's it's a bit of an unusual one because it's not a lot more drilling that was put into it but we put in a much much better geologic controls on it and we put in what we felt were more realistic cutoffs for a project in this area so it resulted in the overall size of the deposit uh, decreasing but the grade going up on the project so rather than point uh, report a little over two and a half billion tons of of mineralization we currently report um, just short of 1.2 billion tons of indicated, fairly fairly high confidence level in the mineralization and about uh, just a little short of 0.2 billion tons of inferred. So about 1.4 billion tons of mineralization, but an average grade of, of about 0.5 copper percent. So a, a grade that's more comparable to other similar assets held by our competitors right now. And it's still, even though we decrease the size, it's still a remarkably large deposit as is. And in that same process, we now understand the deposit better. The, the mineralization report comes from two centers right now, Altar Central and Altar East. Um, but we, we have an emerging center, probably the one that has the best drill intercepts to date on in QDM radio. We just don't have enough drilling to report a resource on that part of the project yet. There's a small gold resource on the surface, but the, the copper gold mineralization needs more drilling. And we've identified several other quality targets on it. So. It's kind of an unusual project in that it, we already report a very large resource, but we still view that this is, is an expiration story. We don't know that we've found the best part of the project yet. So we're set up now um, with the recent financing we completed and all the data sets we've put together. Uh, we're just going into the winter season right now. So there'll be a, be a pause on the project, but we plan to hit the ground running in October when we can get back in on the project and, and have a much more aggressive drill program for the next field season.
0: John, your guys' expectations here to, you know, continue to expand and advance here. What kind of profile and what level do you think is needed to attract, you know, a mid-tier or, you know, major copper company to come and look at this?
1: Well, um, there's several parameters you look at on this. One, of course, is the overall size or total metal content of the system. Uh, We clearly meet those criteria already right now on the project. But what's probably more important for us on this project at this stage is to identify the starting point. You know, where, where, do, you, where do you have your better grades? Um, we have some critical decisions to make in the future in terms of even how things might be mined or processed on this project. And it's a little bit early for us to, to be definitive about what's going on. Until we know the, the full nature of the system, um, we, we we can have some ideas, but the rocks will dictate what what the opportunity is here. And so we need to complete that additional exploration work to make sure we know the best parts of it. But some of the things that this project um, offer us to to evaluate on, on it it's it's a large copper gold porphyry system or series of porphyry systems, cluster of porphyry systems. It's predominantly sulfide mineralization, so the, the logical thing would be to, to mill and concentrate this going forward. But we do have an interesting supergene blanket, particularly over the altar central deposit. And that's where you have um, weathering and remobilization of copper and redeposition of that into a secondary blanket. In this case, it's a secondary sulfide blanket. Um, but it gives it opens up the possibility that you could process that either by conventional milling and concentration or you could process it by heap leaching and the advantage of heap leaching is that it's much lower capital cost to to get started and you produce copper cathode in country you don't have to worry about export of concentrates the disadvantages are that you you don't get quite as good a recovery so there there'll be a classic trade-off opportunity there to see is it better to to have say a lower capital cost starter pit that starts on that material and then subsequently you finance your way into a larger, more expensive, higher capital cost milling operation, but, but would potentially be much larger and much longer mine life. So those are the type things that we, we can see as opportunities, but we wanna make sure we, we've identified all the parts of the system first to see see how that fits. The other thing that's interesting on this project is that it's, it's, it's big in, in low grade when you bulk it out overall. But we're seeing these distinct zones of much higher grade, and they're grades that are that are approaching the grades that you would need to have a, a bulk underground mining situation, which would allow us to chase mineralization deeper on this. And in some cases, a, a bulk underground mine is um, environmentally easier to put in, it's a smaller footprint, and it's it offers opportunities to go forward. We're not at the stage we can say that that's the best way to approach it. Most most likely, I think this project will end up being a combination of, you know, maybe an early starter pit to to do SSDW leaching of of the secondary blanket, followed by a, a larger milling sulfide operation uh, as an open pit, and and then possibly underground portions of it. But it's, it's early stage. We can see all the the geologic conditions to consider all of those, but we have to. Have to define the full system first, and then see what the best pathway forward is. But already, a project like this is is the size and and uh, type of project that the the major mining companies are are pestering us to to monitor at this stage.
0: John, do you think the biggest challenges is it something like water? Is it permitting? What's what do you think is the biggest challenge here on development?
1: Well, when we came in, the you know, the first big challenge was that grade. We needed to see uh, zones of better grade. We've be, we've begun to approach that, and we have a lot of opportunity to continue to approach that. Another challenge that was on this project was is it's not very deeply eroded as a porphyry system. So we see the upper uh, the, the roots of the epithermal style mineralization that often overlies porphyries. That that's probably why we're seeing a little bit more of the gold in the system on it, but it also means we have some deleterious elements like arsenic in portions of the system. And so early on, in, in addition to being low grade, one of the knocks on the project was this arsenic content. And when we came in and mapped that out more carefully and, and understood it well, we, we can use geologic boundaries and zones that we define on that to um, constrain the arsenic where it's actually located. The previous uh, resource estimates on it just blew an a- average arsenic grade throughout the deposit. And um, we we constrain it more. And it's very much in the upper portion of the deposit. Much of it's in the waste rock over the top of the deposit. And much of it sits in that secondary blanket. And, and the nice thing about that is, is that if you do SXEW processing on, on material, heat leaching on the material, it's a way to get around the arsenic issue. Our arsenic's um, the, the biggest challenge with arsenic is is if you're producing a, a, a sulfide concentrate and you get too much arsenic in your sulfide concentrate it can make it so it's it's unmarketable or or at least suffer severe pending so the work we've done has better constrained the arsenic and shown it's still something we have to work around but it's a perfectly manageable situation right now which is different than what the perception was before it's part of what we consider de-risking the project when you have a challenge like this, you want to turn it into an opportunity. And the best way to do it is to understand it well. And and then then you can begin to see how you you work around it and solve the issue. Other issues we have in in Argentina is um, that are more typical of Argentina overall is, is that, even though it's a short distance to the Pacific coast from where the project is, we do have to cross an international boundary. And Argentina would prefer that as much of the value of the project stays in Argentina as possible. Um, there are examples of, of transnational agreements now to allow mines to, to operate on the on the border, and uh, and that framework is set, but it's not really well proven yet. Some some projects like Feel will be be it'll be necessary for them to demonstrate that that can work going forward. And so one of the other advantages of the SXCW starter pit on this is that we would produce copper cathode and doré in in country and. And then that's a smaller volume to be shipped out uh, via Argentina. You don't have to put a pipeline in. But to make this a really large mine, we'll have to have those agreements out to the coast. Water's always a, always a challenge on any project. And it's a challenge even if you have enough of it. There's such a concern around water for, for everybody. And so in this case in Argentina, uh, we, we believe there's sufficient water on the Argentine side of the Andes. It's a much more of a challenge on the Chilean side. Uh, but on that backside, many of the basins contain a fair amount of, of water, and water can be claimed and speculated on and sold within Argentina. So that works a little bit better in many cases. But there are a lot of agricultural uses for water downstream. By um, you know, one of the more notable uses is vineyards, and there are a lot of wineries down downstream from us, and and so there that's always a, a challenge. We'll have to demonstrate that we can source the water we need for for an operation to go forward without compromising the ability for the agricultures to move forward. But there, there's some some great opportunities in there as well, because much of the water is, is very seasonal in the Andes and a lot of it just flows out. So so some type of retention system reservoirs, if you will, um, probably solve that solution to allow us to have access to the water we need and better manage water for agricultures downstream. So, and then then overall, as in any country, and Argentina is certainly, certainly prone to this, is you, you need that stability in taxation regimes and things going forward. So we, we'd be looking for, for continued improvement. We're, we're seeing the right signs right now in Argentina, but we'd, we'd certainly like to, to make sure that that continues to go forward. So.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Well, hopefully there can be a little bit of motivation here. I mean, when you're near the bottom, as far as economics go, you, you typically want to make policy changes to start to improve that. So let's see what happens there.
1: If we have competitors nearby putting, and there are several projects that are more advanced than we are, if those go online, that's fantastic news for us because it it demonstrates that it can be done responsibly, and it also demonstrates the economic impact. So generally, once you start getting more mines going, it's easier to put in
0: additional mines. Yeah, absolutely. On the pipeline of exploration projects, uh, you've got uh, Rio Grande, Aguas Calientes. Um, any comments on plans for those projects? Uh, what do you have on that front?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing those up because sometimes uh, those get forgotten as, as we focus on Altar. We have an interesting handful of projects up in the north. As I mentioned, they're in Salta and Jujuy, which uh, particularly Salta is a very favorable province to be in. And um, of the projects we have to stand out as being a little more advanced, Uh, the Rio Grande uh, copper gold porphyry system is is one that we've worked on quite a bit over the last 15 years. We do have an an interesting resource uh, near the surface on that. It's it's a little over 100 million tons of 0.3 copper, 0.3 gold, um, 0.3% copper, 0.3 grams per ton of, of gold. It's, it's largely oxidized or partially oxidized. And so it's, it's not a large enough deposit by itself or high enough grade by itself to be overly attractive for someone to acquire from us. And it's not our business, at today's metal prices, it would be economically interesting to, to put into production, but that's, that's not really our business. But we do have an interesting situation developing there and that um, nearby, uh, as in 15 kilometers away, Fortuna silver is is uh, just entering into production on their their Lindero gold heap leach system and so Lindero a is a gold porphyry uh, that can be processed by heap leaching. and um, they they have a, a project that they fortuna acquired that a couple of years ago from from Gold rock and have put that into production they they haven't announced commercial production yet but they're very they're very close they are pouring gold now. And we believe there may be synergy for that upper portion of Rio Grande to be processed utilizing uh, some of the, the infrastructure that's there. And so that's something we'll be pursuing with them to see if we can if we can come up with something that makes some sense. On that moving moving forward is is a way to possibly monetize that upper portion of the deposit. But what we're really interested in in Rio Grande is is at depth we have some some very encouraging copper gold intercepts. Um, but they're going to require quite a bit more drilling. It'd be more of a bulk underground mining opportunity there. It's it's a potential for a big project, but one that we'll need to dedicate a fair amount of resources to move forward. And right now with a focus on Altar, we we probably won't go after the deep sulfide potential at Rio Grande at this moment. But that could depend a little bit on how we uh, what happens with the upper portion of the deposit. And then Aguas Calientes is a, a bit of a different style target for us. It's it's a, a epithermal vein system it's it's a precious metal system it's gold copper or pardon me gold silver on that project and it has potential to be high-grade vein style precious metal system and it's it's an intriguing one because on the surface we have a large amount of of float boulders they're called so these are fragments of rock that are are not in situ they're not in place they've been broken up and moved down the hillside and and these float boulders probably average one to three grams and we we get up to 40 grams of gold per ton. And some of these float boulders are pretty well mineralized. And we don't see the obvious source cropping out. And we we believe we have good geologic evidence that the the source is buried by a post mineral flow that's not particularly thick. Uh, Some drilling we did, we reported last year on that, managed to intersect mineralization in the the base rock. It's not particularly high grade, but it, it looks like we've identified where it's coming from. And there's a very good opportunity for us to continue to explore that system so that, that's one that will likely see additional work this year the other important thing to point out is all of these projects we have in the north can be worked all year so they're they're quite complementary in the sense that altar has a distinct field season we we historically have been able to work from about november to april in altar with climate change now where our seasons tend to be a little bit longer we're we're just closing up our camp right now at the end of may up there but um and and but Joan, a, a, a well-drilled out porphyry to the south of us, held by Glencore. Glencore is just completing a low elevation road into the projects, which will probably extend our field season. So next year we're anticipating we'll be, be able to extend our field season from October well through May or even to June with a new access road in but it does leave us with a few months in the middle of the year when we can't work on Altar. And it's a, it's a great time for us to shift our crews to the north and work on Rio Grande and Aguas Calientes. We have a few other projects as well, but they're they're very much earlier stage projects and uh, we'll evaluate those year this year to see if there's things that we move forward or there are a lot of companies looking for projects
0: right now, we may
1: enter into agreements with other companies on those.
0: Yeah, I think monetization makes some sense here, John, especially if you guys focus in on one or two assets. And of course, as you you know continue to delineate it, Altar as well. So you covered uh, company strategy to present really a de-risk and economically sound project to a mid-tier or a major. What's the time frame to really complete that strategy?
1: When we set this up and kind of an overall ideal model business model, when we take a look at it, what we've noticed is that the the sweet spot to monetize an asset like this is is oftentimes at about the completion of a pre-feasibility stage because um, by then you've largely shown the size of the deposit and and you've shown a pathway forward with some economic parameters built around it and then you've, you've de-risked the project enough uh, moving beyond pre fees through feasibility it starts to be uh, a realm that's more more for the eventual operator of the mine. Uh, It'd be a little bit like if if you build a home, um, you you build a home, you you maybe put in some basic landscaping, you show what it's gonna look like, but you don't start buying furniture and picking paint colors and stuff necessarily inside. That's really more for the the person that'll live in it. It's the same here is that we often see that if a project hits pre-feasibility, it's it's that sweet spot where, where we've demonstrated enough value for our shareholders on it and, and in the group that would acquire the project can see it and they, they, they're being asked to pay quite a lot of money in our, in our scenario here. And so they need to have confidence that it can move forward. And so they, they need to see basic engineering done on it. They need to see things like, you know, where's your water coming from? What are your relationships with the communities in the area? uh because they don't they don't want to put that type of money down on on a project and then have a lot of additional work to do so ideally we we note that many projects uh sell at about that point in time as long as the market's robust you can hit a good pre-feasibility study and if the market is terrible it's difficult to transact the project so it's kind of a timing issue on that now when we get in these really hot markets um a good example was our hakira project that we had with Antares. Um, in 2010, we, we completed a resource update which showed a really nice size to the project and we put out a PEA, the, the study that's done before a pre-feasibility study, and that was very robust and very positive. We felt that, that we needed to go another year on the project to complete a, a pre-feasibility study to hit that point where, where we, would, we would have people comfortable on, on paying for the project. But because a lot of other projects were being acquired around us, and and metal prices were high to to our surprise we we received a, a fairly aggressive offer from from First Quantum at a PEA level we were, we were literally within a few days of a large financing to set ourselves up to complete the pre feasibility study when when uh, First Quantum approached us on the project and we had we had two other companies um very in, interested so you need you need you need to get competition and and people moving on it And and when you get in a situation where other projects are disappearing, if you have 10 buyers and and, and four of them buy something and take the best ones off, the others get really nervous and need to move. So sometimes these projects go at earlier stage. A good example is Altar itself. It went at a very early stage to Stillwater. And it it was probably purchased by them too early. And it it wasn't purchased with enough thought on whether it really fit what they were doing on it. So they kind of stubbed their toe on that a little bit now we have the opportunity to to bring the project back around show it in a much better light and uh so intuitively we would think we probably need to get through about a pre-feasibility i would say we probably need about two more years on this project to really get it into a position where where it's likely to be de-risked enough to be of interest to to an acquisition but in in a hot market if we if we see copper rip through five dollars or six dollars a pound you we may find people are putting their hands on these things anyway they can get them
0: Good points, John. And of course, with that price environment, you guys would probably have the ability to accelerate some work with the capital coming in and so forth. And exactly. it'll be interesting to see what tech does, you know, what Freeport, Uncle Mark at uh, Barrick talk about wanting to get into copper and, and hasn't pulled the trigger yet on that. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Of course, you know, BHP, Rio, et cetera.
1: Well, and we're all waiting to see what happens. The one, one group that's been remarkably quiet recently are the Chinese. And it, um they they were participated very heavily in the last super cycle of copper in that period of 2006 to 2011 they snapped up several good projects in Peru, and um, and they I think the you know that clearly China is interested in securing a source of metals and and they don't have enough copper internally so they're 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 looking for areas where they can acquire assets worldwide when they acquired projects in that period of time 2006 to 2011 i think they acquired them thinking they could put them into production much more quickly and so our contacts there have have indicated since that period of time that they're more focused on projects that are truly shovel ready they'd almost prefer to buy a mine just entering production than earlier stage expiration but there aren't many of those out there and and the owners are going to be holding on to those so i would anticipate at some point we're going to start to see chinese capital come into the market as well and, and one interesting thing about that is, is that it's a little more complicated for them to acquire an asset in the US or, or Canada or Australia, for example. In all three of those countries, uh, there are either actual blocks to it or perceived blocks to, to whether a Chinese company could come in and buy an asset. And so it kind of forces them to work in other countries. They're very comfortable working in Peru. They have a lo- large number of assets there already. Uh, they haven't been able to get into Chile very much yet. But they, they tend to really like working in countries like Argentina and Ecuador, because uh, just the nature of the countries and, and how they work is it's a little easier for government to government arrangements. So you could see situations like up in Ecuador where, where they've acquired interest in some major porphyry coppers that are in production now. But one of the ways they did that was by making promises to improve highway infrastructure in the country. For example, so it offers them a distinct advantage to that. So uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see when when they're going to emerge because at these prices they must be concerned about securing more copper.
0: True. Yeah, we've seen Zijin out there with what do we have? Nevsun. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, their stake with Ivanhoe. Of course, you know Ivanhoe just firing up there in the DRC with uh, Kamoa-Kakula. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Mirador, Ecuador. Of course, the Chinese are very active going around scooping up uh, uranium deposits where they can and and taking on partnerships in the uranium space to support their nuclear energy programs and ambition. Uh, But you're absolutely right. They haven't stepped up the game yet um, to really go after it. So we'll see what happens on that front. Well, John, potential investors who are listening on the sidelines here, market cap of the company is about 80 million Canadian why should they consider Aldi Baron at this stage and at current price levels?
1: Uh, the best advice I can give them on this is this is a bit of a sleeper right now. You know, we're we're a very experienced team. We, we've uh, captured opportunities like this before, drilled them out, and sold them for the benefit of our shareholders and our, and ourselves very well. Uh, this one, we spent the last couple of years uh, initially just identifying it and then build, doing all the work to get the table set on this one. But it's not really revealed to the market very well yet that's largely because we haven't been drilling a lot ourselves and and that's a a lot of what drives market interest in our space right now. So in this next year you'll see a much more aggressive campaign on this going forward. it will coincide with us beginning for the first time to really market through interviews like this and getting getting the word out. Uh, we hope to have a, a, a more full OTC listing uh, shortly for the company, which makes it easier for those of you that are in the states to to be investing. So, um, and and you don't have to look much farther than just right in the immediate province that we're in right now, where where more visible groups like Philo have just taken off. Philo's uh, got over a billion dollar market cap right now. On, on a big porphyry system there. So and and we we ours is a little bit different than theirs, but it certainly is on that scale of, of size of system moving forward. So we, there's a lot more leverage on us. So rather rather than chase hot stories that have already run in this space, what as an investor you should be looking for ones that have all the earmarks of being something that could be quite attractive, but people haven't found out yet. So it's a great great time to get in early on this story. And uh, the best way for investors to reach out to the company. Uh, our website, uh, aldebron.com, is a, is a great point to take a look at it. Um, you can also contact me directly or Laura Brangwen with our IR team. We're a relatively hands-on management team, so it's pretty easy to
0: get in contact uh, with us that way. Well, John, look, appreciate you coming on uh, to introduce us to the company. Stay well and good luck.
1: Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I look forward to, to talking more about this project in the near future.